Section 15 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 3, From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day, by Shimon Duvunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 37, External Oppression and Internal Consolidation. Part 2 3. The Third or Black Duma Such was the atmosphere which surrounded the elections to the Third Imperial Duma in the fall of 1907. The reactionary electoral law of June 3rd barred from the Russian parliament the most progressive and democratic elements of the empire. Moreover, by splitting the electoral assemblies into class and national curias, the government succeeded in preventing the election of any considerable number of Jewish deputies. The election took place under severe pressure from the authorities. Many dangerous nominees of the left were arbitrarily put under arrest on framed-up political charges and pending the conclusion of the investigation were temporarily barred from running for office. In some places, the Black Hundred openly threatened the Jews with pogroms if they dared to nominate their own candidates. As a result, only two Jewish deputies managed to get into the Duma, Friedman from the government of Kovno and Niselovich from Kurland. The third Duma, nicknamed the Black, assembled in November 1907. It had an overwhelming majority of reactionaries and anti-Semites. This majority of the right was made up of the coalition of the conservative center, represented by the Octoberist party with the extreme right wing, the Russian nationalists, and Black Hundred. Whenever the Jewish question came up for discussion, the reactionary bloc was always able to drown the voices of the weak opposition, the Cadet Party, Constitutional Democrats, and Trudoviki, the Labour Party, and the handful of socialists. The attitude of this reactionary Duma towards the Jewish question was revealed at its early sessions when the bill concerning the inviolability of the person was the subject of discussion. The opposition demanded the establishment of the full freedom of movement as the most fundamental condition of the inviolability of the person, but the majority of the right managed to insert in the bill the following stipulation. No one shall be limited in the right of choosing his place of residence and in moving from place to place except in the cases set forth in the law and excepting the Jews who arrived in localities situated outside the Pale of Settlement, 1908. In this wise, the Russian legislators cleverly succeeded in harmonizing the principle of the inviolability of the person with the lifelong imprisonment of millions of people in the huge prison house known as the Pale of Settlement. Their solicitude for the maintenance of this vast ghetto was so intense that the reactionary government of Stolypin was often the butt of criticism because it did not always show 
sufficient regard for this holy institution. The fact of the matter was that in May 1907, Stolypin had issued a circular ordering the governors to stop the expulsion from the interior governments of those Jews who had settled there before August 1906 and possessed a family and a domestic establishment in those provinces, provided they were harmless to the public order and do not arouse the dissatisfaction of the Christian population. As a result of this circular, several hundred, possibly several thousand Jewish families were saved from expulsion. In consequence, the right brought in an interpellation calling upon the government to explain on what ground it had dared to issue this charter of privileges to the Jews. The interpellation, of course, proved effective, and the government did its utmost to nullify the exemptive provisions of the circular. The anti-Semitic Duma betrayed the same spirit on another occasion by rejecting in the same year, 1908, the bill introduced by the opposition conferring the right of visiting the health resorts or watering places upon all sufferers without distinction of nationality. Yet, these legal discriminations were not the worst feature of the Third Duma. Even more excruciating was the way in which the right wing of the Russian parliament permitted itself to make sport of Judaism and things Jewish. It almost seemed as if the devotees of autocracy, the members of the extreme right, had come to the Russian parliament for the express purpose of showering abuse not only on the Russian constitution, but also on parliamentary government in general. The hirelings of Nicholas II danced like a horde of savage over the dead body of the emancipation movement, singing hymns in praise of slavery and despotism. Creatures of the street, the reactionary deputies drenched the tribune of the imperial Juma with mud and filth, and when dealing with the Jews, they resorted to methods similar to those which were in vogue among their accomplices upon the streets of the devastated cities. The term Zid and the adjective Zidovsky, in addition to other scurrilous epithets, became the most favored terms of their vocabulary. They inserted formulas and amendments in various bills submitted to the Duma, which were deliberately intended to insult the Jews. They called upon the Ministry of War to bring in a bill excluding the Jews from the army in view of the fact that the Jewish soldiers had proved an element which corrupts the army in the time of peace and is extremely unreliable in the time of war. 1908. They supported a law barring the Jews from the Military Academy of Medicine on the ground that the Jewish surgeons had carried on a revolutionary propaganda in the army during the Russo-Japanese War, 1910. The Octoberists demanded the exclusion of the Jews from the Office of Justice of the Peace for the reason that their admission was subversive of the principles of a Christian state, 1909. The remark made on that occasion by Karaulov, a deputy of the opposition, where there is no equality, where there are pariah nationalities, 
there is no room for a constitutional order, was met from the benches of the right with retort, thank God for it, we don't want it. A similar cynical outburst of laughter greeted the warning of Rodichev. Without the abolition of the Jewish disabilities, there is no access to the temple of freedom. The two Jewish Duma deputies did their utmost to get a hearing, but the Black Hundred generally interrupted their speeches by wild and offensive exclamations. In 1910, the Jewish deputy Niselovich succeeded in obtaining the signatures of 166 deputies for a legal draft, abrogating the Pale of Settlement. It was laid before the Duma, but resulted merely in fruitless debates. It was referred to a committee which quietly strangled the bill. 4. New Jewish Disabilities Spurred on by the reactionary Duma, the government went to even greater length in its policy of Jewish discrimination. Premier Stolypin, who was getting constantly nearer to the right, was entirely oblivious of the promise made by him in 1905 to remove immediately all restrictions which are the source of irritation and are manifestly obsolete. On the contrary, the ministry presided over by him was systematically engaged in inventing new grievous disabilities. The Jewish deputy Friedman was fully justified in declaring, in a speech delivered in February 1910, that even during the most terrible time which the Jews had to live through on the plebe, no such cruelties and barbarities were practiced as at the present moment. Wholesale expulsions of Jews from the cities situated outside the Pale of Settlement and from the villages within the Pale assumed the character of an epidemic. In the spring of 1910, the government decided on sacrificing to the Moloch of Jew hatred a whole hectatum by expelling 1,200 Jewish families from Kiev, a measure which aroused the cry of indignation beyond the confines of Russia. The acts of the government were marked by a refinement of cruelty, for even little children, invalids, and aged people were pitilessly evicted. Particular enmity was shown in the ejection of Jews who had committed the crime of visiting summer resorts outside the city lines. The Senate handed down a decision to the effect that the Jewish soldiers who had participated in the defense of the besieged fortress of Port Arthur during the Japanese war, were not entitled to the right of residence which had been granted by a former decree to the Jewish soldiers who had taken part in the war. The spiritual murder of Jewish school children was the function of the Black Minister of Enlightenment with the significant name of Schwarz. The school norm which before the revolution had been applied merely as a government order without legislative sanction, was formulated by him into a law and ratified by the Tsar in September 1908. Henceforth, all institutions of higher learning in the empire were open to the Jews only in a proportion not exceeding 3% of the total number of students for the capitals, 5% for the educational establishments outside the Pale, 
and 10% for the payroll settlement. In view of the fact that during the emancipation movement, the influx of Jews to the higher schools had been very great, so that their number was now vastly in excess of the established norm, it would have become necessary for the higher schools to bar completely all new candidates until the number of Jewish students had been reduced to the prescribed percentage limits. For a while, the minister recoiled from taking this cruel step and permitted for the next few years the admission of Jewish students within the limits of the percentage norm, calculating the latter in relation to the number of the newly admitted Christian students during a given year without regard to the Jewish students admitted previously. Subsequently, however, many educational institutions closed their doors completely to the Jews, referring by way of explanation to the completion of the norm by the former pupils. Once more, bands of the martyrs of learning could be seen wending their ways towards the universities in foreign lands. A year later, in 1909, the percentage restrictions governing the secondary schools were also placed on the statute books. The proportion of Jewish admission was fixed between 5 and 15 percent, i.e. slightly in excess of the old norm, and was extended in its application to private educational institutions with the prerogatives of government schools. This law spelled ruin to many gymnasia and schools of commerce, which, though directed by Christians, were almost entirely dependent on Jewish support. 80% of the school population consisting of the Jews. As for the gymnasia maintained by Jews, with very few exceptions, they never were able to obtain from the ministry the status of government institutions. The educational hamans, however, went a step further and in March 1911 secured a new case of the Tsar extending the percentage norm to the externs. Henceforward, Jews were to be admitted to the examination for the certificate of maturity or for the completion of a part of the curriculum only in a certain proportion to the number of Christian extents. In point of fact, however, there were no Christian extents since only the Jews who had failed to find admission to the schools were forced to present themselves for examination as extents. In consequence, the enormous number of Jewish children who had been barred from the schools by the percentage norm were deprived of their right to receive a testimonial from a secondary school. This law was passed during a brief interruption in the sessions of the Duma and was never submitted to it. The deputies of the opposition brought in an interpellation concerning this action, but the black parliament laid the matter on the table and the law which lacked all legal basis went into operation. Swayed more and more by the tendencies of reactionary Russian nationalism, Stolypin's government set out to uproot the national cultural institutions of the alien races in Russia. The Poles, the Finns, and other nationalities became the victims of this policy. The lash of oppression was also applied to Jewish cultural life. In 1910, Stolypin issued a circular 
impressing Russian officialdom with the idea that the cultural and educational societies of the aliens contributed towards arousing in them a narrow national political self-consciousness and towards the strengthening of national separatism, and that, for this reason, all the societies of the Ukrainians and Jews which were established for the purpose of fostering a separate national culture should be prohibited. 5. The Spiritual Revival of Russian Jewry This new blow was aimed right at the heart of Judaism. For after the revolution, when the political struggle had subsided, the Jewish intelligentsia directed its entire energy into the channel of national cultural endeavors. Profiting by the law of 1906, granting the freedom of assemblies and meetings, they founded everywhere cultural, educational, and economic cooperative and credit societies. In 1908, the Jewish Literary Society was established in St. Petersburg, which soon counted over a hundred branches in the provinces. The same year saw the formation of the Jewish Historical Ethnographic Society, which began to publish a quarterly review under the name of Yevreskaya Starina, Jewish Antiquity. The oldest educational organization among the Jews, the Society for the Division of Enlightenment, enlarged its activity and was endeavoring to create a new type of national Jewish school. A multitude of other cultural societies and circles sprang into life with the sanction of the authorities throughout the length and breadth of the pale. Everywhere, lectures and conferences were held and heated debates were carried on, centering around national cultural problems. Particularly passionate were the discussions about the position of Hebrew and Yiddish in public life, in school and in literature, leading to the alignment of two parties, the Hebraist and the Yiddishist. The lecture, conferences and debates themselves were generally carried on in one of these languages, mostly in the Yiddish vernacular. In spite of their crudities, these partisan conflicts were clear indication of the advance of national self-consciousness and of the desire for the upbuilding of a genuine Jewish life upon the concrete foundation of a cultural autonomy. Of course, anti-Semitic Tsardom could not be expected to sympathize with this inner regeneration of Jewry, and, as in the time of Plevi, it directed its blow at the Jewish national organizations. Here and there, the blow was effective. In 1911, the Jewish Literary Society, with its 120 branches, which had displayed an energetic activity in the establishment of libraries and the arrangement of public lectures, went out of existence. In general, however, the attacks directed against the Jewish spirit proved much more difficult of realization than the attacks upon Jewish property. The cultural activities continued in their course, defying all external restrictions and persecutions. The literary revival, which had started in the 90s and was but temporarily interrupted by the stormy events of the revolutionary period, also came into its own again. The rejuvenation of both the national and popular language 
finding its expression in a widely ramified Jewish literature, proceeded along parallel lines. The periodical press in Hebrew, represented by the two dailies, HaZefira in Warsaw and HaZeman in Vilna, and the monthly HaShloa in Odessa, found its counterpart in popular press in Yiddish, reaching hundreds of thousands of readers, such as the dailies Freind, the Friend, published since in 1903 in St. Petersburg, Heint, Today, Moment, and others in Warsaw. In addition, there was the Jewish press in Russian, the weeklies Voskot, Razviet, Yevreski Mir in St. Petersburg, and few other publications. In the domain of higher literary productivity, new forces were being constantly added to the old ones. Besides the great national bard Bialik, there appeared a number of gifted poets. Schneer, the singer of storm and stress, of doubts and negations, the romantically inclined Jakob Kohan, Fichmann, Reisen, David Einhorn, and many other useful, as yet scarcely unfolded talents. J.L. Peretz found a rival in Shalom Ash, the portrayal of patriarchal Jewish life in the provincial towns of Poland, the Stettel, the provincial town, 1904, and the author of charming sketches from Jewish life, as well as a playwright of note whose production had met with tumultuous applause both on the Jewish and the non-Jewish stage. Moshe's Zeitung, Messianic Times, Kot von Nemeko, God of Revenge, Shabbatai Zivi, Ehud's Blue Blood. His numerous co-workers in Yiddish letters have devoted themselves with youthful enthusiasm to the cultivation of this branch of Jewish literature. In Hebrew fiction, a number of talented writers and a group of novelists who published their works mostly in the Ha-Shiloh came to the fore. The successor of Ahad Ham in the editorship of this periodical, Dr. Josef Klausner, occupies a prominent place in Jewish literature as publicist, critic, and partly as historian. If we add to these talents the not inconsiderable number of writers who are domiciled in Galicia, Palestine, Germany, and America, and draw their inspiration from the vast Russian Jewish reservoir, the growth of Jewish literature during the last decade stands forth in bold relief. This progress of inner Jewish life in Russia is truly remarkable. In spite of the catastrophes which had descended upon Russian Jewry during the first decade of the 20th century, the productivity of the Jewish national spirit has gone on unchecked, and the national Jewish culture has struck out in all directions. The assimilationist positions, which have been generally abandoned, are only held by a few loyal devotees of a past age. It is true that the process of elemental assimilation, which penetrates from the surrounding atmosphere into Judaism through the medium of language, school, and literature, continues to affect Jewish life with the same force as of old. But there can be no doubt that it is effectively counterbalanced 
by the centripetal factor of a national culture which is becoming more and more powerful. Large as is the number of religious apostates who have deserted Judaism under the effect of external pressure and of moral renegades who have abandoned the national ethical ideals of Judaism in favor of a new-fangled decadent aestheticism, it is negligible when compared with the compact mass of Russian Jewry and with the army of intellectuals whose national self-consciousness has been deepened by suffering. As in all previous critical moments in the history of the Jews, the spirit of the nation, defying its new tormentors, has grown stronger in the worn-out body. The Hamans of Russia, who have attempted to crush the eternal people, have failed as signally as their predecessors in Persia, Syria, and Byzantium. End of section 15